With that said, look with me at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. We're going to pick up at verse 19, and I'm going to read through verse 25 as I'm going to continue to reemphasize verse 19 through 25 is all one sentence in the Greek. In English, we've broken it up, but follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear what it is that the head of our church, our Lord Jesus Christ, wants his church to hear. Illumine our minds, transform our hearts. Cause us, through the preaching of your word, not only to love the truths in your word, but to love you, our God. To love Jesus, our Savior. To rest in you. To trust you. Cause us to know in the midst of of trying in uncertain times that Jesus Christ is the church's one foundation. Nothing else. May we believe that. May your son preach that into our hearts by the Spirit as the word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you know, this isn't news to any of you, we live in perhaps the most uncertain times that any of us have ever known as Americans. We live in the midst of a global pandemic, and nothing is certain anymore. Our national economy And our civil society is in massive upheaval. We face an increasingly tribalized body politic that really tribalizes around constructed identities. 
purveyors of identity politics have grasped for political power via the means of pitting an intersection of aggrieved groups against the inherently and irredeemably racist majority. There is utter rebellion against any civil authority. The police are increasingly demonized and attacked as racist by virtue of being police. The new secular religion emerging from the sexual revolution has ascended in power. The scientists and sociologists and psychologists have become the unquestioned secular priests. Patriotism is now seen as hatred for minorities, and virtue is found in iconoclastic hatred for America's past. Iconoclasm is to tear down the statues, if you will, the icons. Humans are increasingly seen as parasites on the planet's environment. Babies are a hindrance to women's progress. The traditional family is a patriarchal imposition on women and children. Biological sex is a social construct that oppresses self-expression. And there is a secular socialist revolution unfolding in front of us, about which we wonder, will it prevail? About which I can answer, I don't know. I don't know. Meanwhile, the church has lost sight of her mission. Her mission is to make Christ known to a lost and dying world, to every tribe and tongue and nation. The church, though, has often exchanged the gospel of eternal salvation in Christ for a gospel of social and political progress in our nation in the here and now. Further, the church has perversely dreamed that becoming like the world, she can win the world. The church often wants to be liked more than it wants to be biblical. We often forsake sound doctrine because it doesn't scratch people where they itch. Their ears burn for self-help, self-improvement, and self-esteem rather than sound doctrine. We often forsake meaningful church membership and church discipline so that the church will be more acceptable to the world. See, people want internal, spiritual autonomy. That's what they want. They do not want external religious authority found in an institution like the visible church. We frequently fall for the satanic trap of valuing entertainment more than holiness. And for those churches who do pursue faithfulness by the grace of God, there is increasing opposition from the world. Freedom of speech and the free exercise of religion are increasingly undermined by a therapeutic culture that demands protection from ever being offended and who wants to use the lever of government to enforce such demands. And more than all these threats, above and beyond all these threats, more dangerous to our souls, 
to our persons than anything I just mentioned is the constant struggle against our own sin, our own flesh. See, these are perilous times indeed. So how can the church stand without being shaken in times like these? Well, to understand that, we need to understand what the church's one foundation really is. Our foundation is not the America we grew up knowing. That is not our foundation. Our foundation is not freedom of religion nor freedom of speech. Our foundation is not capitalism. But I want to add one more that we may peculiarly feel the pinch of right now. Our foundation is not having a location for our church to gather together. Our foundation is not a place to meet. It's not, our foundation is not owning our own building where we can freely gather. It's not what it is. So what is the church's one foundation? The church's one foundation to steal from Wesley is Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I want you to hear that because that matters. We've lost sight of that. I bring this up and I want to make it really clear as I begin a building campaign series. Due to the exigencies of our current situation, we've been pressed toward buying our home for our church to gather. We've always been a church family who rents. And now we're discussing being a church family who owns our own home. But as we enter a building campaign in the coming weeks, I do not want you to lose sight of this central truth. We do not need to own a building to have a sure foundation as a church. In fact, the pursuit of owning a building can become a distraction from what it means to be the church and what our mission is and where our hope lies. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So my plan during this series, the whole time, is to speak about the church's one foundation, accomplished. That's what we're going to talk about today. The church's one foundation has been laid. It is accomplished. And then, in the following weeks, we're going to talk about the church's one foundation, applied. So as we begin this series, I want to orient you to this section of Hebrews briefly. Many of you have been with me through Hebrews for a long time, so you're probably fairly oriented, but I want to remind you. Hebrews is a book that is large sections of exposition. That's laying out dogma or doctrine or truth, and it's exposing it, expositing that. And exhortation, that's telling you what to do with it. Doctrine then application. Here's what's doctrinally true. Here's what you do with that. Hebrews 
10, 19 through 25 is one sentence that forms an inclusio. You guys have heard me talk about inclusios before. An inclusio is like a bookend, a bracket. It forms an inclusio, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, with Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And it's telling you, the author is telling you that everything in between 4, 14 through 16 and 10, 19 through 25 has to do with these themes. And 4, 14 through 16 and 10, 19 through 25 bracket the single largest dogmatic section of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 1 through Hebrews 10, 18. Look, look at these texts together. Keep your hand in Hebrews 10, 19 right there and look over at Hebrews 4 and verse 14. And I want you to hear the themes. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now turn over to 1019. Listen to some of the repeated language. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies, that's the holy place, the holy of holies, again, in heaven, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up or stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What I want you to notice is that these two sections of Scripture are bracketing this whole text. Christ is our great high priest. And Christ has offered the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. And so now we have confidence to draw near. Now we can come to heaven where he is. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, I said, is one sentence. And, and the foundational idea of that sentence is in verses 19 through 21. And after laying the foundation in verses 19 through 21, we then get these three exhortations that follow. Let us, let us, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up. Uh, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, but it's very interestingly around these, these kind of virtues you see with Paul. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love, faith, hope, and love. 
these exhortations function as the privileges and duties of the church, and we'll cover those in the coming weeks. This morning, we want to look at, excuse me, this afternoon. I've got to get over that. It's dark in this room with no natural lighting, so it confuses me a bit. This afternoon, we are looking at the foundation of the church in verses 19 to 21. In the coming weeks, we'll look at the church's one foundation applied as we consider our privileges and duties. So let's look at the church's one foundation accomplished. Hebrews 10, 19, look there. Therefore, brothers, since we have. Now, I just want to stop on those words for a second and pay attention to what's happening grammatically. The first thing we're being told grammatically is this word, therefore. Therefore, you know, you always come to that and say, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore is essentially saying, in light of everything we've just said, from chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, in light of what I've just spent five chapters expositing for you about your great high priest, Jesus Christ, your great high priest who cut a new covenant with you in his own blood, an eternal covenant, about your great high priest who offered himself once for all to forgive you of all your sins, who has caused you to draw near to God. Therefore, since you've just heard all that exposition, brothers, since we have, now notice the two things he says we have. We have confidence to enter the holy places. That's the first thing he says. And then we pick up the second thing he says we have in verse 21. And since we have, they've just taken that um, participle from verse 19 and assumed it in verse 21, rightly because the Greek does. We have. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. See, we have two things. That are the foundation for the church. We have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. And we have a great high priest over the house of God. So I want to take those two items and discuss them. First, we'll talk about our confidence to enter the Holy of Holies. And then our great high priest. What is meant by this word confidence? Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy, by the way, not the holy places, I don't really love that translation, the holy of holies, that inner part of the tabernacle where the great high priest only could go and but once a year and after having a blood atonement for his own sins. That place where God's glory dwelt, that no man could enter, that place, we are told, we have confidence to enter. What is this word, confidence? Well, it's to be taken both objectively and subjectively. What do I mean by that? Objectively, we have the right We have the objective right to enter the Holy of Holies. We have access. We have standing. 
The author of Hebrews has been at pains in chapters 9 and 10 to teach you that while the old covenant sacrifices could never accomplish the atoning work necessary to purify and perfect us, to sanctify us so that we can draw near to God, so that we can enter the Holy of Holies, Christ's priesthood and sacrifice did accomplish that for us. He's been at pains to make that clear. Christ has sanctified and perfected us by the single offering or single sacrifice of himself once for all time. Look at Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 14. And every priest, that's the old covenant priest, stands daily at his service. See, his work is never done. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They were always typological. They always pointed forward to the one who would take away sins by a sacrifice. They were always pedagogical. What I mean by that, they're teaching you. They're always that. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He didn't have to stand anymore. His work was done. It was complete. It was finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or those who have been sanctified. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. He has completed the atoning work for our sins. We are now perfected, sanctified. We have access to the Holy of Holies. Listen to how Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul uses this sort of objective access language. In verse 1, listen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have access to him. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This objective standing, this right of access gives us subjective confidence as well. So it's not just an objective confidence, it's a subjective confidence. Because we have a right of access, we no longer have to be fearful of drawing near to God. We no longer have to fear he won't receive us. He will receive us. He'll gladly receive us. He has given us confidence and boldness to enter the Holy of Holies. But, but how? How has he done that? From whence does our confidence come? Look at the rest of the text in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies, by what means? By the blood of Jesus. So you don't enter the Holy of Holies by your own good works. Do you catch that? You don't enter the Holy of Holies by your own sincerity. You enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. 
You have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. By, he's going to modify this, he's going to actually add to this, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That's interesting. We have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies because of the, uh, of the atoning work of Christ. But I want you to r- remind you really of what this language means in an old covenant context. Here, here's what I want you to grasp. God's people have always known that he's holy. Always known that he's holy. They have always feared his holy presence. Always. Adam and Eve, the moment they sinned, what did they do? Walk around the garden boldly? They covered themselves. They hid in shame and fear from God's presence. Their sin was exposed and they were fearful and ashamed. God came in judgment and God cursed them with death. God banned them from the garden. Do you remember that? He kicked them out of his holy presence. And he placed two cherubs there. Cherubim. The cherubim were placed there. The two cherubs placed there and a flaming sword to guard the way back into his holy presence. If anyone tried to enter, they would be cut down by his justice. God is holy. And all rebellious and sinful creatures will justly face death in his presence. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses, first thing he says, do not come near, for this is holy ground. When Israel came to Mount Sinai, the Lord commanded that the people not even touch the mountain upon which he delivered the law. The people were rightly afraid, for God is holy. God commanded Israel to erect the tabernacle in which he would dwell in holiness in the Holy of Holies. In the tabernacle, if you remember, there's a holy place where the priests served regularly and the Holy of Holies where they could only go once a year at the Day of Atonement. There was a curtain that separated those two chambers. And if you read the instructions in Exodus... God dwelt in holiness in the, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, behind that curtain. And the curtain, the people were told, had two figures stitched on it. It had a cherub stitched on each side. Reminding you of what? The garden. You may not enter without being cut down by God's justice. The high priest could only pass through the curtain once per year, and even then only after making atonement for his sin. The high priest entered fearfully as he potentially faced his own death. God is holy. Only those who are sanctified may draw near. When Israel completed the tabernacle, if you remember the end of the book of Exodus, the Lord filled it. And we're told even Moses could not enter. Or draw near. God is holy. The sons of Aaron, the priests, Nadab and Abihu, 
offered a sacrifice in the tabernacle, which the Lord did not command. And they were consumed by fire from heaven because God is holy. When they were carrying the ark of God's presence and it nearly fell to the ground, you remember the scene? Uzzah reached out to try to stop it from hitting the dirt and Uzzah was struck dead. Uzzah wrongly imagined that he was cleaner, more holy than the dirt. God is holy. When Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord and his holiness, he didn't try to fist bump him and say, God is my homie. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. God is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. So how do we enter his holy presence with confidence? By the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Did you catch that language? Through the curtain, that is through his flesh. His blood is the atoning sacrifice that perfects his people. Thus we have a new and living way. There's no more need for dead sacrifices. He's offered once for all a sacrifice which perfects and sanctifies the people. He opened this new way through the curtain, that is his flesh. See, Jesus' death on the cross is being compared to the tearing of the curtain that guarded the way into the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died on the cross, if you remember the scene, the curtain was rent in two. It was torn in two. And what is the image that we're supposed to remember at that scene? Jesus walked between the two cherubs and the flaming sword fell on him in our place. And now we walk with him into the Holy of Holies with boldness. Now we can sing. We can sing the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. That's not all. That's not even the whole of the good news of our foundation. He has not only given us confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by his blood, he has also given himself to us as our great high priest. That's the second gift mentioned to us. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, it's a bit like a circumlocution. It's a it, great priest over the house of God is just another way of saying the great high priest. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, did you hear that glorious reality? We're called the house of God in Hebrews chapter 3. Who is the house of God? They are God's people. 
his church. Moses, we're told in Hebrews 3, was a servant in God's house. And Jesus is the son, the heir, the Lord of that house. And we have a great high priest over the house of God. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, which gives us confidence to enter the Holy of Holies. And Jesus is our great high priest. If you remember, the priest is the go-between. If you will, the prophet spoke on behalf of God to man, and the priest went on behalf of man to God. He stands between the people and God. He brings the people to God, and Jesus is our great high priest. As our great high priest, he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. As our great high priest, he continues, hear this, to watch over us. To intercede for the church. He sat down at the right hand of God and ever lives to secure the blessings of our redemption for us. Ever lives to that end. How how many of you, and you turn on the TV and you see the world just becoming unraveled, it seems? And you start to become fearful. You stop and just think, Jesus hasn't forgotten us. He's praying for us right now. That's my foundation. Look, folks, you don't know the outcome of the election in November. But whatever the outcome is, whether you like it or don't like it, you know what's still true? Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus has you. He's your great high priest. He's not forgotten. Listen to the refrain of this language all the way through Hebrews. Go with me to Hebrews 1 and follow me through several passages. I want you to feel the effect of this. Of his priesthood. Look at verse 1. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago. At many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear that? Who's upholding the universe the day after the election in November? Jesus, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that's what a priest does in an offering, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering or consecrated through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, the priest, and those who are sanctified, 
That's us, the church, all have one source, better translated, Father, or all of one Father. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers. You hear that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation, to satisfy God's wrath for the sins of the people. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Look down at chapter 5 and verse 9. And being made perfect or consecrated, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look down at chapter 6 and verse 19. Chapter 6 and verse 19 We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look down at chapter 7 and verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Look at chapter 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the Holy of Holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus having secured, it should be translated, an eternal redemption For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant, that is, the Mosaic covenant. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10 and verse 11, once again. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you hear it? Christ is your great high priest. He has sanctified and perfected his people. He has cut a new covenant with his people, an eternal covenant in his blood. He has secured an eternal redemption for his people. Not a temporal redemption like the people leaving Egypt in the Exodus but an eternal redemption for his people. He ever lives to intercede for us. He is in heaven defending and advocating for his church. He will never lose the bride for which he gave his life. He will never lose his grip on his sheep whom the father put into his hand. He will never cast away those whom he's not ashamed to call brothers. He will never cease to care for the house of which he is the heir. He will never cease to care for the body of which he is the head. He will never fail to keep the covenant which he cut with us in his own blood. And thus we sing. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish is with us, with her, the church, to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Do you hear what the church's one foundation is? It is Jesus Christ, our Lord his priestly service, and his offering of himself on the cross. 
Christ gave himself for us. Christ watches over us. So here's the question. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? If not, you are still in your sins and under God's just condemnation. And I implore you to turn to Christ and be saved. Trust in him and him alone. I'd be happy to talk to you about that after the service. If you do know him, then be encouraged. Be encouraged. Yes, we are living in difficult times. Yes, we work to find random times and places to meet as a church, and even then, secretly. Yes, we don't have any clue what's coming next. If any of us thought we had a clue coming into 2020 what this year was going to be like, we were rudely interrupted from our plans, and the Lord has disciplined and chastened us never to think we know what tomorrow brings. We just don't. Yes, we suffer with disease and societal unrest and political and economic uncertainty and and even now in California, natural disaster. Yes, we struggle against the principalities and powers, against the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. But you know what we do not need to worry about in the midst of that? We do not need to worry about whether the foundation of the church can be shaken. Everything else might be shaken. The foundations of this nation might be shaken. The foundations of your personal health might be shaken. The foundations of your future financial nest egg might be shaken. But the foundation of the church is never Shaken, Christ is our sure foundation and anchor for our souls. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, and we'll wrap up here. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Look down at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So in spite of all of our concerns as the church militant, in other words, the church here on earth, and are wondering about what's coming next, we can sing with great joy. Yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, 
Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high, may dwell with thee. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks We give thanks that in the midst of many uncertainties, we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We see the geography of that kingdom in the visible church of Jesus Christ, militant here on earth. And among those, the church triumphant, who are with you even now at rest. And we've joined together by the Spirit, and through the Son to offer you praise. We give thanks that your Son has offered a once-for-all-time sacrifice for our sins, that the work is completed. We give thanks that he is our great high priest, ever interceding for us, and we pray that your Spirit would be at work in us so that we will not lose sight of the sure foundation we have, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. In our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.